86 years and over 15 million acres later, Ducks Unlimited, along with our volunteers and supporters, continue to lead the way for the future of waterfowling. Whether it's attending a local event or joining our volunteer team, you too can play a role in the next 15 million acres. Visit www.ducks.org and find out how you can leave your mark for generations to come. Ducks Unlimited, the world leader in wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Bottomland is Mossy Oak's original camel pattern created by Toxie Hayes over three decades ago. This pattern preserves the original design while applying advanced technology for increased effectiveness. The same field-proven components and colors, the same dirt and bark elements, the same ability to blend into dark environments and obscure a hunter's outline from every angle. Mossy Oak Bottomland. Get him. Welcome, folks. Y'all come on in and make yourself at home. This here, well, this is the Rolling Thunder Podcast. Your home for all things Rolling Thunder. This episode is brought to you by Mossy Oak, because everything is better in Bottomland. Kent Cartridge, Quality Matters, Performance Counts, Shen Gear, Waterfowl Gear that is built better, Benelli USA, Dominate the Skies, and Ducks Unlimited, the world's leader in wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Well, welcome back to another episode of the Rolling Thunder Podcast. Hey, buddy. What's going on, dude? Man, we have got a really fun show today. I'm excited. I just literally was thinking about, we always wish that we could get our guests in the, I guess you can call this a studio, it's a conference room, but... Well, the on-air um, sign has new batteries in it, so yes, <laughs> and it's it is live, a studio. That's right. <laughs> um, but, you know, conversation is so much better. Stories are so much better when you're in person, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, you can read body language, and it just makes for the questions better, and it makes the interaction so much better. And so I'm really stoked because we've got, I think, a really cool story to... I want to say tell, but I'm not going to say tell because I'm not telling any of it. We're going to listen <laughs> to a great story. Um, so we have two very distinguished guests in our studio today. The, the first is Tom Bennett, who is um, the retired commissioner of the Kentucky Department, Department of Fish and Wildlife Resources. There you go. I knew it was going to be a three or four letter acronym <laughs> yeah. like every state. And every state's got uh, it different. And they, they all do it different. Same. That's right. <laughs> And then Gabe Baker, who is the regional director uh, for Ducks Unlimited in West Tennessee. Yes, sir. That's correct. And, um, man, thank you all so much for showing up. I'm not sure. Glad to be here. <laughs> I'm not sure what Gabe told you that you would you would get out of this, Tom. But um, we we really appreciate you uh, taking some time out of your busy schedule and stopping on your way through. Um, how in the world do y'all know each other? Well, uh, I was commissioner from 1993 to 2005, and about two years into that, we had dealings with the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation in Kentucky, and his dad was chapter cha- state chapter chair president. Okay. So is Kentucky home for, for you? Yes, sir. I was born and raised in Bowling Green. Uh, it's where my family kind of resides to this day. Uh, my dad, as he said, was the state chairman for the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, I believe in 1993, 94, and 95. And for most of our listeners who are probably not overly familiar with the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation in terms of um, what it's like to go to an event, do y'all host do y'all host events similar to Ducks Unlimited or Delta like banquets? Absolutely, yes. They're uh, outdoor conservation uh, <clears throat> fundraising. Sure. You know, a nonprofit organization that have very similar banquets just to the Ducks Unlimited huh. and uh, NWTF type banquets that we host today that actually I host now, I guess. <laughs> well, you guys may be making elk calls after this is over. We've made a few. Okay. Um, and, and we've actually, I've, I've been on one elk hunt and killed one elk. So... Um, that's exactly you're, you're one more than down. that's one more than every person that works here combined. So, <laughs> well, I've, I've never been drawn in Kentucky. I've put in for 19 years, and oh, it wow. just never seems to work. You don't get any priority points as a former commissioner. I'm sorry, I can't hear you. 
<laughs> That's a good answer. So the obvious question that anybody listening right now is asking is how in the world did um, the current Ducks Unlimited regional director in West Tennessee and the and the retired commissioner of uh, Kentucky's Department of Wildlife Where's the common denominator? Well, he, he works and lives here now. I, I actually have a, a, an interesting history. I take care of three states today for the American Battlefield Trust. So I've been in Shiloh and Corinth working on battlefield issues. The, the trust helps acquire land uh, adjacent to the battlefield that is actually part of the battlefield. Wow. And, and then we tap into state, federal, and private resources to acquire that land before someone builds a um, a barn on it or mm-hmm. builds a road through it or puts mm-hmm. a playground on top of it. We we try to preserve the land, preserve mm-hmm. the ba- the actual battlefield before urban sprawl takes it away. And we do that in 26 states. So my, my work in Kentucky, because I lived, grew up and lived in Kentucky, I was born in Memphis and my parents were from deep south Mississippi. So that's sort of three states wow. that sort of fall in yeah. people where I, I, I know a little bit about about the states so i was here um and learned that, that gabe was working here for for du because i've i've decided and at, at the behest of several of our, our our friends who were involved in the elk project in kentucky to actually write the story to actually mm. actually just tell the whole story about how the actual event took place where, where we started bringing ultimately 630 something animals from western states and then um, how, how it came to, to where there's a herd of several thousand animals now roaming around in the Appalachian Mountains of several states over there. So 639 is the exact number of what was transported? 1,600 oh. something. Okay. Uh, the original goal was for us to bring 200 elk each year for 10 years. But halfway through the project, we realized that Chronic wasting disease was mm-hmm. popping up in deer. Um, some states were having problems with brucellosis and tuberculosis. So those are all diseases that would, would be dangerous to cattle farmers, to people who care about wildlife. And if, if we were to bring a diseased, some sort of a, one, one of these big six, you know, 1,200-pound animals, comes through a state and infects somebody's cattle herd, we'd, we'd be in a lot of trouble. So we had to advance that. The, the 10-year program became three years. And when we got 1,630-something animals on the ground, we figured we had probably reached critical mass where mm-hmm. they, would, they would be fine. Now, we brought elk from six or seven states. Where all did you bring them from? Oh, gosh. we Let's see. Uh, uh, let's see. We've got... Kansas, New Mexico. Um, I didn't know there were any elk uh, in Kansas. North, 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 North Dakota, Arizona, here. Utah. Yep. A lot, especially from Utah. And so we've got quite a bit of genetic diversity there. The interesting wow. thing about <clears throat> Eastern Kentucky is when when we when when we when we when we try to decide, okay, do we have enough habitat? Because you know Kentucky's a big coal mining state, and we had an awful lot of coal mining going up there, and these aren't just regular sized bulldozers these are house sized machines that are that are picking up hundreds of cubic yards at a time and we're taking mountaintops over cat d12s i mean just hot knife through butter right across that topsoil we were we were a little nervous about whether we had the habitat and then when we we put the deer biologist in a state plane and he said go go find us a million acres and then we'll come talk well he came back and he said I said, John, did you find, John Phillips, did, did you find a million acres? He said, no, sir. He said, we found three and a half million acres of contiguous forest. We've got plenty of green stuff. So that's not your problem. So your question a minute ago was, how did, how did I meet the Baker, Baker family? Well, the, the mastermind behind everything in Kentucky was a, one of our Fish and Wildlife Commission members appointed by the governor named Doug Hensley from Hazard. Doug had been, been involved in... Uh, stocking 3,400 deer from western Kentucky to eastern Kentucky mountainous counties to where now eastern Kentucky's deer herd is just as competitive as, as any in the, in America. And he realized that if we're going to stock elk in Kentucky, uh, we're not going to do it in ones and twos and threes. We're going to do it in 200s and 300s and 400s and, and 1,600. And Doug, Doug was the one who called 
Gabe's father, Tom Baker, who was then state chapter chair president, and uh, said, Mr. Baker, we might need a little money here, and that's where where we met. So your role uh, for the state of Kentucky was a full-time job, correct? You're, you're like the executive director. Yeah, akin to here in Tennessee mm-hmm. to, to being the executive director of uh, TWRA. TWRA, right. Yeah. Um, we've got a gazillion young listeners is why I wanted to try to explain. So Doug was a, a member of a board. There's a, there's a, in Kentucky, we call it the Kentucky Department of Fish and Wildlife Resources Commission. And the commissioners on there, it's a little confusing because my actual title working there was commissioner. They're also commissioners, but right. they're appointees of the governor. Sure. They're considered that, district commissioners. Is that similar to the TWF here? The, yes. The, Foundation yeah. here, okay. Well, no, you're fat. I think it's a, yeah, close. Okay, yeah, I'd say that that's probably right. Okay. But they're appointees of the governor. Mm-hmm. Arkansas I does a, a very similar thing. I mean, they have they have some full time positions that are you know biologist and director positions, and then they have a board that's appointed that are um, the the boards in all these states. Mo- most of these states have have you know Kansas Fish, Wildlife, and Parks, Louisiana Game Fish Parks, and and then some of them that have marine resources out along the coast do as well. But they all have a citizen, non-paid, volunteer appointed by somebody, whether it's the governor or the sportsman's groups mm-hmm. in the state. And, and so Doug Hensley is, was a member of that group of people, and he brought this to you. Well, he'd been on the commission, as I told you, and engineered 3,400 deer moved from west to east Kentucky to where their deer population now is just as good as anybody in the country. And he realized that if we were going to put elk back, we weren't going to do it a handful at a time. They needed genetic diversity. They needed a critical mass. 1,600 turned out to be turned out to be a pretty good number because there's thousands of them roaming around West Virginia, Virginia, North Carolina, and Tennessee now. So... Um, where, who dreamed that up? He did. Doug, I mean, Doug Hensley, Doug, Doug dreamed it up. Well, actually, actually Tom's dad, uh, Gabe's dad, Tom was involved in bringing, uh, this is an interesting story. If you want <laughs> yeah, to tell so the whole story about how we this. got to land between the lakes. So, uh, at land between the lakes, there's a elk and Bryce, bison prairie. And at the time there was bison running, roaming around this, around an area they considered called, uh, I believe it's called Golden Pond. Um, and, and I believe 92 or 93, there was a dove hunt in Simpson County, Kentucky. Uh, when you say a prairie, was this just like a large fenced in? I mean, Yeah, just large like a, fenced in, high fence area. Okay. Uh, these animals are all contained. You can drive up to this day. You can put a quarter or a token, I guess they call it. In a slot, the gate opens. You drive through. It's okay. five. It's five dollars. I went through yesterday. <laughs> I was just fixing to say LBL is the only place yeah. I've ever seen. It, yeah, uh, so you live can elk. you can drive around and you can see the elk and the bison. They live there year round. Okay. Um, but as I was saying, in ninety two or ninety three, there was a dove hunt in Simpson County at a gentleman by the name of Lester Key. Lester owned a company called Key Oil Company, uh, sold fuel to Marathon Fuel Stations and various other companies, but. Um, there, the story that I've always heard was uh, there was a gentleman that worked there at Keel that was uh, terminated of his employment, uh, became a little dis- disgruntled about this termination, and knew about the dove hunt. It was a big, big event every year. I mean, we're talking anywhere from 50 to 150, maybe even 200 people go to this dove hunt. And uh, the night before the dove hunt, uh, supposedly the gentleman went out and salted the field and then the next morning, he called the game warden, and the game warden issued everybody in that field a ticket. So from that money, which it beats federal federal fence, I mean you're baiting for yeah, migratory bird. It goes to federal court in Simpson County. Uh, and the story that I've always heard was my dad convinced the judge to allocate the money. I mean it was going to go to Fish and Wildlife anyway, but it, to allocate the money to put elk at the Bison Prairie to pay for it. So that happened. And then Doug Hensley, who was the seventh district commissioner, I believe, over in Hazard, <laughs> read it in the newspaper. And he said, I got to see this. And he got in a truck and he drove to his farm in Butler County, which is around Bowling Green, and then drove over and saw the elk there and said, there's no reason we can't have elk in eastern Kentucky, where I live. Well, just one minor difference. The, the elk at Land Between the Lakes are behind a, an eight-foot contained fence. Oh, yeah. You know. 
they did like a, I guess they would call it a soft release there. So they and Doug had the idea that we could turn them loose on private property in eastern Kentucky. <laughs> Most of eastern Kentucky, about ninety nine percent of it is privately held. Really, either, either coal companies or yeah, you know, the Daniel Boone Force is that's there. where that's where my head was, was Daniel Boone. But but the majority of property is is privately held. Coal must companies, be a lot timber, more land timber over companies. Than I thought. Well, I sent them after hoping to get a million acres and they came back and told me there was three and a half million of contiguous forests. So, so, so this Lester key. Yep. That was his name. Passed away. And this, I guess this was a business affair. I assuming so. I was, because this well, you've been to those dove hunts. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, any, anything that's 150 guns is a, that's I'm a sure business. <laughs> spread out. And, and Lester was sure. a very prominent man in, in the area. And I'm sure it was a lot of doctors and lawyers and there's no telling who was really at that dove hunt and, and so who was invited the state and what of happened. K- the state of Kentucky had a warden <laughs> who had enough paper in his book to write all those tickets. Well, no, actually, actually, when you get something that big, the feds will be involved. <laughs> yep. Oh, that's true yeah, because it's, it's a, yeah, it's uh, a migratory, migratory bird. bird. Can confirm that's how it happened. Wow. <laughs> You've been on one of those? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Let's so, not tell anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so as Tom was saying earlier, um, Doug got the idea, and then he calls my dad, and he says, you know, hey, I'm – Doug Hensley, I'm 7th District Commissioner for Kentucky Park Fish and Wildlife, and I've got a crazy idea. And my dad basically said, what do you want me to do? And Doug said, well, I want you to pay for it. My dad said, okay, and he hung up the phone. <laughs> and uh, at that time, like I said, my dad was state chairman for the Rocky Mountain Oak Foundation. He went to the board of directors, and he had a plan. And So Doug said, Doug called your dad said, we need a million dollars. Pretty much. And your dad said, okay, I'll go find it. Exactly. And then this was before the dove hunt, after the dove this hunt? This is long this is, after the dove hunt. So well, this, well, the dove hunt, actually, the fines were diverted from going into the to the treasury to pay for the uh, elk and bison range prairie at LBL. Oh, I see. Okay. So, so a dove hunt, the fines from a dove hunt, created the elk and bison prairie at LBL, which then Hensley saw and got the idea for Elk in East Kentucky. Right, right. So, what what we've realized, what what Gabe and I have realized in the last couple of times we've talked, all these things happened in in a sequence, and we all happened to be in the right place at the right time, able to pull our little bitty piece of the puzzle together. And I was caught up in it because his dad and Doug Hensley are like forces of nature you know they're 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 like okay we've decided we're going to take this hill and it's just a question of how many dead bodies they're going to be on the way to the top of the hill but i mean literally i mean they just, right. if they decided they were going to do something it was getting done wow so as commissioner when Doug brought this to you the first time what was your initial reaction? I thought he was out of his head. <laughs> I really, I really <laughs> believed that that he had made it up to try to tease me on the way, and then of course his follow up calls were convincing me that I might need to put the deer biologist in a plane. So when he we found the habitat, then we found the money, then we knew that we had some challenges ahead of us because at the time in the nineties. Kentucky had a vibrant deer herd. We were getting complaints from farmers about deer eating crops. We were getting complaints from the Kentucky Farm Bureau Insurance Company because deer were causing them a lot of damage when the when the deer car collisions occurred. So we knew we had some real challenges. We had some public relations challenges. So we we implemented immediately a series of statewide meetings, public meetings, which we would announce and spread the word to get people there to talk about it. We were blown away by the support. Um, the was it like 95% of it, the it was, it was It was an incredible number of Kentuckians who were thinking, well, if you guys are crazy enough to think about this, we think this might, might be something really good for Kentucky. And then, of course, when I would go to professional meetings, when, when the southeast group of states would gather up, as we did a couple of times a year to talk about similar issues and problems and learn from each other. I'll never forget the time that I announced when uh, Gary Myers was the, was the director of, of TWRA here at the time I was sitting next to him. And when I announced that we were exploring the idea of putting elk back in Eastern Kentucky, I got one of those looks like your father would give you 
when when he realized that you'd driven the car without a license or something you know and, that, and was, all these biologists in the room were, were looking at us from the other states and they were shaking their heads and going this guy's lost his mind well they knew they knew for example like that pennsylvania had the elkhart and benazette and but but the whole deal was it was completely different i mean benazette was a soft release they brought him in they stayed in that area what kentucky was wanting to do was completely different and that's why these biologists were looking at him like he was crazy I mean, we're talking, like he said earlier, just dumping them out two and three hundred at a time. Pennsylvania and Kansas have watchable wildlife herds. That's what they're intended to be. People are intended okay. to be able to drive up, stay in your car, take a picture, say that you'd seen a, an elk in the wild. Our herd was always intended to be a huntable herd mm-hmm. from day one because we'd made the commitment that since the Elk Foundation members – they're all hunters. We, everybody that we're, all of us that are belong to the Elk Foundation, life members, and other anybody, that's that's hunters. So we 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 felt the obligation we had to honor that this was going to at some point this would be a huntable herd. So let's talk logistics for just a second because I've got so many practical questions as you're talking. I'm sitting here thinking. So first off, where do you buy these elk from, or or well, you I mean, can't buy them. You, okay. You, you have to get, in in all states, the wildlife that, that exists, whether it's uh, squirrels and chipmunks, uh, whether it's migratory birds or uh, cervids as big as, as big mm-hmm. an elk, belong to the state. Mm-hmm. They belong to the to the people. They're, mm-hmm. they're a common resource right. for everyone. So you have to have a state willing to give you, trade you, or sell you some some resources okay and we uh we we were able to work out a deal because in utah there were so many elk they were having some depredation problems out there and remember when westward expansion in this in this country occurred you know 17th and and 1700s and up into 1800s we were Encouraging people to go out there and, and right. homestead. homestead. They right. were they, the Homestead Act would you know if you and your family went out there, mm-hmm. each of you could get you know 140 acres of, of ground. Mm-hmm. And so we we in states west of the Mississippi River. Remember, the further west you get, the more public land there is. Mm-hmm. The further east you get, back back toward the Atlantic Ocean, the less, less. public land sure. there is. So out there, uh, cattle farmers who were paying you know, a nickel a cow to a month, you know, to to graze on public land. We're really concerned there were just too many elk. So Utah wanted to, to get rid of as many elk as we would take. That which is hard to imagine in our part of the world. But their grazing pressure, I mean, that's real. I, I, I turkey hunted a place in southeast South Dakota, and the rancher had 30,000 acres, you know, between what he leased and owned and all that. And he ran a herd of about 550 mama cows. Mm-hmm. And he had a figure in his mind for the pressure that the antelope in his area put on um, on his brows. And so I'm sure Utah would have been the same way if, if they've got they, depredation they, problems. They, they were incredibly generous with us. And everything we could capture, and remember, we're not capturing these in the summer. We're capturing these in the dead of winter. When we could bait them into a, 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 a contained area, were they like ten by ten traps with trip wires, and and then would bait them with alfalfa, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, and then they had to be captured, quarantined. We had to feed and water them. I think we had to quarantine them for two weeks. Holy smokes! So they had to stay there. We had we sent staff out uh, from Kentucky who just literally took up residence. Yeah, and lived there. lived lived out there and trailers. So you get one elk in a ten by ten or two or how many? No, no, no. These are uh, the the trap was in the the first stage into putting them into a corral. Okay, you know, a corral that we you know you 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 know how you make these sure like larger corrals pin. with gates, mm-hmm. catch pins, mm-hmm. and and you keep them in there. You take blood from them. You send the blood off and make sure that there's no diseases that you don't have permission to travel through Arkansas or mm-hmm. travel through these other states. You got to have permission to travel any of these animals. Uh, anywhere through any of the from the state vets sure so imagine the complications of dealing with not only the fish and wildlife agency in each state but the state agriculture vet in each state 
federal regulations when you you know you're moving an elk across state lines and then you know god forbid there's a snowstorm that gets you caught and you're you're stuck with without a way to water and feed these animals so i'm sure they were very docile once they were caught in the catch pens oh my and, gosh yeah as calm as the way, be. the way yeah uh, wait, 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 wait. A calf has been weaned. i mean i can't even imagine well they just had their horns cut off so they were not very happy you you got to cut you got to take the horns off in order to get them in the cattle trailer so they're and then I, somebody's I, literally driving them across the country just like and they're was they're it being, 30 hours from the ranch in utah to hazard yeah two drivers so, so you gotta have two drivers one has to sleep and then think about the the exposure of noise sounds pollution sure. lights that that these animals have never been but the mortality rate was amazingly low uh the first couple of shipments we didn't lose any at all wow um and then you know there were there's always going to be some but the mortality rate of losing the transport um, loss was very very low you mentioned it was in the dead of winter is that just because it's not as stressful on them as no no go in the summer no you you bait them that's easy that's when you can catch them oh gotcha less food (laughs) that's that's when you can bait them in sure let's talk about the first release i mean we had what seven elk come from kansas six cows and one bull uh, what was that? December the sixteenth, nineteenth, December nineteenth, nineteen ninety three. Well, that would have been the ones in Lambton Lakes. I'm talking about the ones in Eastern Kentucky. So that would have been ninety six, ninety seven. Well, ninety ninety, yeah, ninety seven. You're right. You're right. Because I, I was right. there. You're right. I was, I was 90, old enough to ninety seven. Ninety seven. December nineteenth, nineteen ninety seven. Thirty seven school buses. Over four hundred and what fifty people there. No, we estimated the crowd to be about 6,000. Was it that much? Because you had all those oh school buses. Gosh. They they let school That's out. That's right. 37 they let school, school buses. Out they let so they school could watch out so people can watch the elk. Seven elk come out of the trailer. <laughs> I, well, I was, was about two to, trailers. I remember that being talked about. I would have been 16, and I remember that it was written up in one of the TWRA publications. I mean, I remember it being everywhere, and I literally remember being in hunting camp. And people going, did y'all see what Kentucky just did? I mean, now, now Commissioner, <laughs> uh, Director Director Myers released his here on, I think the name of the mine was, uh, might have been Blue Diamond, Blue Diamond Coal Mine in far t- west east Tennessee. North Carolina released theirs on a national park property, West Virginia. Uh, I can't remember where, but, but all the states that were kind of smirking at us ended up getting uh, ended, ended up bringing it up. So Kentucky released theirs uh, on a company, I believe, called Cypress Amax Coal Corporation. It was Starfire Mine. It was in Perry County, which is where Hazard is located. And uh, like you said, it was six cows and one bull. And Why? it was bull number four. Why there? We had a very friendly uh, cooperative coal industry at the time. You remember what we we went through in the in the 70s with, with the oil embargoes and the coal prices just shot up through the roof. And then there was there was some regulatory issues with coal mining itself in Kentucky. That coal mining needed a shot in the arm. This was this they viewed us as a way to show people that a post mining land use of supporting a wildlife population was a good thing, and it it sort of worked out for yeah, everybody. Mutually beneficial it, deal. It, it, that that's a good way to put it. Huh. And so one bull, six cows. Started it all. And you said bull number four? Yep, that was his name, bull number four. We're, well, the six, Why number the six four he, if he was the first bull? Well, it was just the fourth, fourth animal we'd probably caught. And oh, we, had, okay. we had tags, <laughs> tags, tagging the numbers. Now, the first 200 animals off the trailers come coming later were all had radio collars on. Okay. Yeah, that was going to be my next question is, did you what kind of monitoring did you did you do? They were very extensive. The University of Kentucky, and you can look these up, these University of Kentucky studies up, um, that they were just remarkable. They did some really, really solid research. You know, we had concerns about uh, the diseases that whitetails can carry, brainworms. Um, there's a brainworm that whitetails carry that sometimes is fatal to elk. We were so afraid that we're going to go through all this trouble. We're going to bring all these animals. Yeah. And the little bitty tiny brain worms are going to kill them all. Just has never occurred, never happened. So from from the initial, you know, stocking, has the 
trajectory been upward to the population? I mean, were there any declines or setbacks? You know, um, there's going to be in every in every wildlife population. You just name, pick one. I mean, they're they're all going to go up and down, but there there is a stable, um, like a growing, critical mass. Or a- there's a critical mass in East Kentucky spilling over into the to the adjacent states and it's all it's all going very well right now so when when you the first conversation that you guys had was early 90s is that what you said 92 93 no let's see let me let me do the math here the first conversation i had was early 1997 like like maybe maybe january february 97 and by the end of the year we were putting elk on the ground oh wow so that turned around quick it did for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, we were starting to get nervous about chronic wasting disease in deer, and and in elk and some other some other states, and we could not, in good conscience, bring an animal from a state that had chronic wasting disease. Right. And, and the other thing was, um, we're a big farming state in Kentucky. You know, the central and western part of the state is is our breadbasket. Yeah, sure, and thousands of hundreds of millions of acres of corn soybeans cattle sheep horses think of all the horses you know if we'd brought a diseased animal in that had any spillover and crushed the state's economy into thoroughbreds we'd have been we'd have been roasted and and you know it would have been it would have been tough for us so we had to we had to push ourselves to get this done while we knew we could get disease-free animals so Somebody from your delegation reaches out to somebody from Utah and connect the dots. As it turns out, they were working on problems with too many elk. And you're the solution. They were, they were glad to see us. <laughs> <laughs> what was the name of that ranch? I can't think of it right now. Hard, uh, hardware Ranch. The Hardware Ranch, that's right. Hardware Ranch, Utah. If you Google it, you can you can see the kind of terrain that we were looking at. When when this all started going down, what were your fears as the commissioner? Well, the biggest fear I had in the fall of, of 1996, as we were leading up to turning these animals loose, was that uh, exactly what happened. We, we were notified that a cow in Utah had brucellosis. So immediately the entire state of Utah was off Shut limits down. to us. That's yep. why we ended up with seven elk from kansas and i'll never forget the director of wildlife roy grimes came in and he said we're gonna have to put the elk release off until the summer of 97 i said no he said why not i said he said we we'll find we'll find another source by then i said if you don't have elk on the ground by christmas of 97 i'm afraid that the farmers and the ranchers the, the cattlemen in this state will go to the legislature and say, we're kind of nervous about bending, bring it, bending, bringing an animal that's four times the size of a whitetail, knowing what a whitetail can eat in corn and soybeans right now, and bringing it into Kentucky. Their thought was if they could get them on the ground, then they couldn't stop them. And that's what happened. I mean, they pushed and pushed. I mean, Doug Hensley and my dad both. And that's where the Elk Foundation really came into play, in my opinion, is they had a commission meeting, and there was – I believe seven commissioners at the time, two commissioners were in favor of bringing out to Kentucky and the other five were against it. And what they at the time, their excuse was we don't have the money. So <clears throat> unbeknownst to anybody else, my dad uh, was at the commission meeting. Doug Hensley made a motion to bring elk back to Kentucky. It was seconded. They called for discussion. And when they called for discussion, Doug ended up introducing my father, who stood up, and I believe he had what a two hundred, two hundred fifty thousand dollars check in his pocket, and basically from, just, from the Elk Foundation. From the Elk Foundation, just basically popped in and said, "My name's Tom Baker. I'm with the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. In my pocket, I've got a check for two hundred thousand dollars." But it got real the, quiet. You talk about you talk about two steamrollers. These guys, when when Baker, <laughs> I mean, when Baker and Hensley, <laughs> with the promise of a million dollar, yeah, I mean. Debt down, just right here. We're going to here's twenty five percent down payment. Yeah. I'll find the rest here soon. <laughs> We're getting you the rest. Hold now, on. now, let me frame this. Let me frame this for you in a different way. Think about this country's formation, and it, let's think. Let's think about a guy named Daniel Boone. Okay, Daniel Boone went through the Cumberland Gap, which at the time there was no way to get over the the mountains into into central Kentucky and and 
start the westward expansion. You could go around it, but you couldn't couldn't go over it. So Boone goes through in about at about eighteen sixty seven, and uh, all of a sudden, I'm sorry, seventeen seventy seven. He go he goes through the gap, and then when he comes back, he he gets in touch with a company called the Transylvania Company, and they were trying to develop lands that they had bought from the Shawnee in Kentucky, but they couldn't get to it because there was no way through. So they contract with Boone in 1775 to cut the Appalachian, to to, to cut the Cumberland Gap Trail, Mm -hmm. which he does. In the next 30 years, about 200,000 people followed him across the Cumberland Gap. Lincoln and Lincoln's parents and Lincoln's grandparents, Abraham Lincoln's grandparents and, and parents crossed the Cumberland Gap to get into Kentucky and then into Illinois. 200,000 people followed him through. On the way, they ate every bison, every elk. They killed every mountain lion. They killed and ate the bears. They killed all kinds of things because they had to. They had to survive. Turkeys, deer, antelope, everything was here. It decimated turkey populations. There were a very few white-tailed deer left, but that was it. So so in, in about... 1810, 18, somewhere in there, all the elk are gone. And then they're gone for 225 years until his dad, Tom Baker, <laughs> and Doug Hensley decide, we're going to put elk back in East Kentucky. <laughs> wow. That is just a mind-blowing it way is. to look at it. I mean, that is unreal. For, for 225 years, we have no elk. Now, it's a tiny bit different kind of elk. The eastern elk ran from Florida all the way up to southern Canada. But the eastern elk was, was ended sometime in that 30-year period after Boone cut the trail. And then these elk are, of course, a Rocky Mountain elk. And they seem to be doing just fine against the brain worm. <laughs> the eastern elk that was here, was it smaller? Yeah, I or? think they're closer related to the tool elk, if I'm not mistaken, which is in what, what northern in the California. What is a tool elk? <laughs> it's... Just similar to the Rocky Mountain it's, it's, it's another, it's a it's another subspecies. Yeah, right? okay. it's kind of like a Roosevelt elk, gotcha. a little different. Size-wise, it's similar, though. And yeah. A little smaller, yeah. but yeah. yeah. Now, I made this prediction some, some time ago. If if the weather and the habitat continues to be as mild as it has, we're going to see the rock, the world record elk is going to come out of Kentucky sometime soon. Without a doubt. Wow. Wasn't uh, 400-inch bulls have been killed in Kentucky already? Wow. Multiple. Which is, I mean, that is a massive animal. Absolutely. I mean, for southeastern people, put that in whitetail terms. 200 plus. Yeah. yeah. 400, <laughs> inch, a 400 inch elk is equivalent to a 200 inch yeah, whitetail, right? Well over yeah. the Boone and Crockett. Very, I would absolutely say. So uh, Boone and Crockett, I believe, is 375 uh, for all time. If I'm not mistaken, so that's uh, a no doubt. So for sure, a 400 inch elk is similar to a 180 plus whitetail. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I, when I said that's a, a a giant animal, I was literally referring to just everything: the body, the 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 rack, the elk that I killed. I think he measured like 295 or something. It's like a 140 inch deer. It's a great elk. Yeah. Do not be ashamed. No, I, I'm not. But but I, um, it was such a exhilarating experience when i walked up to the animal it, it was a, the, i felt like i was standing beside something that was the size of my pickup truck i like i didn't have a category it was overwhelming it was yeah. just like I, I don't know what to say yeah i mean it was monstrous well su- suffice to say it was a it was a fun project uh i was caught in the the maelstrom of 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 hensley and and and, and baker and thanks to them we 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 turned 225 years of Elkless, Kentucky, and now and now several other right. eastern states. Mm-hmm. So the question I was going to ask you just a minute ago when you, I said about the starting the conversation. So the conversation started like 96, 97. When did the other states get on board? Like it the was, surrounding um, states. It, it, took them, it took them 10 years. 10 years. And when I started thinking about why did it take them so long, it's very simple. They didn't have Tom Baker. And they didn't have Doug Hensley. They didn't have someone. And remember, Hensley Hensley bought thirty brought thirty four hundred deer from far west Kentucky to eastern Kentucky to explode their deer herd over there. 
He also, there, there was one other story I was reminded of uh, as, as I was trying to think of all the things that Doug made me do. <laughs> and, 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 and he came, he came in one, one spring while he was on the commission and he said, uh, Hey, he said, those, those geese out there in the ponds behind your office here, he said, what do y'all do with them? I said, what do you mean? What would you do with them? He said, he said, don't you trap them every year? Cause geese go flightless in, sure. in, in yeah, when they're molting. summer, when they're molting. Sure. We typically herd them into little catch pens, mm-hmm. put tags on them, turn them loose and they gather you know, the ha- data. Happy. Sure. their happy little life. And, and so he said, uh, why don't we bring those up to East Kentucky? And I said, where would we put them? He said, well, I've, I'll, I'll call the manager at Dewey Lake, which is a Corps of Engineers Lake. He said, I'll get that all, all taken care of. So conversation goes along for weeks and weeks and weeks. And I tell the wildlife guys, I said, look, when you capture these this year, put them in boxes, take them up to Doug. Doug's got clearance for it to put them on Dewey Lake. Nobody once asked me, whether I had talked to the Corps. Because when I got there, I, I went up the day that we'd caught 500 geese. Oh, my God. <laughs> and imagine imagine flatbed trailers, you know, pulled sure. behind pickup trucks with cardboard boxes. Yeah, full of geese. Full of In golf the middle of the geese. summer when it's, when it's 87 degrees and 90% humidity, and we got them in boxes, <laughs> driving them two and a half hours to Dewey Lake. Yeah, like a billy goat in, in farm. Right. Yeah. With holes poked in the so top we, of the box. So we started yeah. pulling, up, pulling down to the ramp there at Dewey Lake where we could turn them all loose. And uh, this Corps of Engineers guy's standing there in his, you know, uniform, and he's kind of waving his hands, saying, what are, y'all, what are y'all doing? And I explained that we had come to release Doug's geese that he'd gotten permission to release. There was no permission. <laughs> He'd for, he'd forgotten to tell me that he might have he might have forgotten to talk to the manager, so I get so I get on the phone with the manager and before long I'm talking to the district engineer, the Corps of Engineers in Huntington, and he's explaining that we don't have an environmental impact statement here, we don't have a permit, we don't have anything, and what did the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service say when you decided to move those geese? Well, I thought that was all taken care of because it was just taken care of. <laughs> So I hand the phone to Hensley, and Hensley, Hensley ends up on the phone with, with the colonel uh, and says, all right, colonel, we, we can take them back to Frankfurt. He said, they're probably going to be all dead by the time we get back to Frankfurt because, you know, it's 87 degrees out here right yeah. now. He said, we'll just tell them that you wouldn't let us turn them loose. <laughs> five, minute, five minutes later, my phone rang, and, and I was given permission to turn the geese loose. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the crazy part about that, though, is that, you know, the old adage where there's a will, there's a way comes to mind. And I'm not specifically talking about the geese, but the story that comes to mind when I hear about you saying the reason these other states are 10 years behind is because they didn't have a Tom Baker and a, and a well, Doug there's, Hensley. There's, there's another reason. I'm not a biologist. I, and, and biologists are scientists. And scientists, when, when, they, when they develop plans to small game plans – rabbits and squirrels, quail and, and pheasants, what, whatever it is, they do a 10-year plan because you, you can't think about having and measuring a wildlife population and the success of a program unless you go 10 years mm-hmm. because it, it, it has to be able sure. to be self-perpetuating. You have to have a genetic mass of certain – and frankly, uh, Doug knew he was on the commission for four years and we had – short time to get stuff done very determined fellas and I, and I guess that what i'm bringing up here is that you know um it takes somebody who's willing to lean into something to get something done well like when you all started this company here somebody had a passion for the outdoors somebody's somebody's doing and this is the way you've expressed it the way doug expressed his passion was was this way and and if you think about when when Tom's Tom Baker was on the commission, when Gabe's dad was was with Tom, they did stuff not because any other reason than they just felt and mm-hmm. believed it was the right thing mm-hmm. to do. You know, my dad was the chairman of the board for the Rocky Mountain Foundation when they came up with the slogan for "Pass It On." Uh, him and Jay Dark came up with it while they were at a board meeting, 
And, you know, that was a slogan for a long time. And, and that's really what my dad and Doug's goal was, was to have something to pass on, something, something for the future. And, you know, I have been in hunting camps with John Tate, who was the senior land agent <clears throat> sorry, for the Cypress Amax Co. Corporation, where they put the elk with Doug Hensley and my dad since I've been hunting. I mean, they had a 725-acre place in Butler County, Kentucky. And, I mean, to this day, even after my father passed in 2014, I still go opening weekend and hunt deer and turkey with John and Doug up there in Butler County. And, and Doug and I killed birds this year together. And it was it will, without a doubt, be the best hunt that I can ever recall on. Well, and I, the reason I bring it up is because it's real easy to sit on the sidelines and think, what can I do? I can't make a difference. But, I mean, stories like Tom Baker, Doug Hensley, remind me of Rex Hancock. I mean, West Tennessee would not look the way it looks if West Tennessee had had a Rex Hancock that, that stood in the way of the Corps of Engineering and stopped channelization. You know, I mean, there's the – I guess the what I'm really trying to illustrate here is that these are just regular guys that were motivated by passion and – believed something was a good and and went after it and you know every position that my dad or Doug Hensley held was a volunteer position not a one of them was a paid position to this day I mean that's from from I guess it was 87 to 90 was Doug's first term on the commission and then he served on the commission from 93 to 2005 and my dad was probably somewhere in that uh 2000 to 2000 10 12 range whatever yeah. the years were well we're lucky to have had them absolutely that's such a cool story mm-hmm. <laughs> so how long after y'all released the elk in 97 did kentucky start drawing tags to hunt them so the first hunt which i can say i was there uh was in 2001 i believe they had nine tags seven thought, tags. it was nine or ten I don't nine know. or ten tags um but there was a gentleman there by the name of tracy cerise who killed the first bull in Kentucky, shot it with a muzzleloader. And uh, once again, I can say I was there. <laughs> it, it's a small world. Um, someone we haven't mentioned on this podcast, who I feel like is a very, very important person to mention, is uh, Dr. Karen Waldrop. Dr. Karen Waldrop is now the uh, chief conservation officer at Ducks Unlimited. Okay. But Dr. Dr. Waldrop worked for Kentucky Fish and Wildlife for over 20 years. And when the first hunts were going on, she was a graduate student at the University of Kentucky, and she was studying the elk. Wow. And small world. Now, we both work for Ducks Unlimited, but when I was nine years old, she and I, I believe, took a scalpel and cut out an elk's eyeball, put it in a jar of formaldehyde, and then I got in trouble because I took it to school. (laughs) (laughs) You you can call Jan Lang over at St. Joseph Catholic School in Bowling Green. She'll tell you that's the truth. That's (laughs) hilarious. That's a great story. Um, I, well, I I don't know what to say. I'm kind of blown away. I mean, it's such a such a cool combination of passionate people, and you know, and then just the timing being right. I mean, connecting you know Utah needing to get rid of some elk, and you guys having the resources and the wherewithal and the manpower, and um, I guess that's just the the beauty of conservation. Though. We haven't we haven't told you all the good stories yet. We'll come back again <laughs> and do that another time. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think another cool thing about it is that like at face value to just some redneck that sees the tags go up for draw every year, they're like, oh, you know, they put elk back in Tennessee, Kentucky, and everywhere else. But to take a look deeper into it to see what all had to happen for that to happen, for some redneck to be able to put in this redneck to put in for a draw every year. Well, think how many years it's been. It's been been 25 years. Right. And think about it. There's a generation out there now who thinks we've always had them. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it goes to speak to, and this, this is happening in, in all the States that I'm, that I'm in all the time, Mississippi, Tennessee, and Kentucky. Urban sprawl is taking Mm -hmm. thousands of acres a day in all these States. And until we somebody stands up and says, "Okay, enough. Let's let's make sure that we conserve right. something that's out there for you know the mm-hmm. sportsmen and sportswomen of the future." Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. It, yeah, you're talking to two victims of urban sprawl yeah. right here. Yeah, no, no <laughs> doubt. We we were talking about that recently. It's one of the things that just now you're starting to hear about with the turkey population, especially you know that. You know, we're killing the same number of turkeys we've been killing in Tennessee for a few years here, but we're losing acres by the gazillions. And 
we both, I grew up hunting in middle Tennessee because we didn't have turkeys enough to hunt here. And everywhere that I hunted, you know, in high school and early college. Is now paved over. Every yep. one of them. It's all, it's all neighborhoods. Yep. You know, you talk about harvest rates, but Kentucky had a harvest rate even, I think it was for the first probably four or five years of 100%. Uh, uh, that one year they did 40 tags. I think the year they did 40 tags was the last year they had a 100% success rate on harvest in Elkin, Kentucky. And it's, I mean, it, it's did, insane. I'll, I'll table it with this last converse, last question, but in those early years, how did you connect access with the tags? Like if a guy from Western Kentucky got a tag, how did he find a place to hunt? The first couple of years, we worked very closely with every person that got a tag to make sure we connected them with a landowner. That would be well to let And then, of course, it was natural to flow into a program where if you had, if you were a coal company or a timber company that had you 5, could. 10, 15,000 acres, and you would allow us to hunt someone on your permit, we'd give you a, a, an owner tag, a mm-hmm. landowner tag. So that not only you'd let our hunter, our public hunter, but you could sell put, it or who'd or, put who'd put ten dollars in to, mm-hmm. to get a draw. Now I put ten dollars in for every year, and I've never been drawn. <laughs> <laughs> My daughter got drawn two years ago, and oh, uh, cool! I managed I managed to find an elk for her. But the the point is, uh, we have to keep it for the ten dollar hunter. We keep, we don't want sure. K- Kentucky to be. Where you have to spend five or seven ten thousand right. right. dollars to kill an elk. We want we want this to be something for 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 us for, mm-hmm. for people that can afford ten dollars right. for a permit. Right, mm-hmm. that's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, listen. Thank you very much. I know both of you have full plate, full schedule, and tons of things to do. And uh, this is I feel so honored to have heard this story Been before. Thanks I for having, I just thanks like for being having in us the room here. here. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> yeah, no no problem. You're. You're welcome anytime, <laughs> both of you guys. So. Thank you. Thank we you. do need to have that part two story time you were talking about a minute ago. <laughs> well, I can um, only imagine. <laughs> you invite me to a dove hunt down here sometime, and we, we might make that work. So. I know of a couple that take place. There you go. Legal ones. All right. All right. Very legal ones. Well, on that note, uh, I'd say let's wrap it up. I hope you guys have enjoyed this episode. It's been this fun. Is, Thank uh, you. Been a lot yeah, of fun. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for stopping by. We appreciate you guys stopping by and listening in. This has been another episode of the Rolling Thunder Podcast. Catch you on the next one. Hey, y'all, this is Spence and Frawley, and just wanted to say thank you for listening to another episode of our podcast. We really, really enjoy producing this podcast and would be really grateful if wherever you get your podcasts, if you would subscribe to the Rolling Thunder podcast, and give us a five-star rating. Somehow, apparently, out there in internet, la-la, media land, (laughs) that helps our podcast to be found by other people like you. So we just want you to know we appreciate you listening, and we'd like to ask you to subscribe and give us a five-star review and keep on listening. And unfortunately, recording podcasts don't pay the bills, so we just do this for fun and for y'all, and we want it to grow as bad as y'all want it to grow. So... We could really use your help in doing that. Share it with a friend. Yes, right. We appreciate y'all stopping by again. Thanks for listening.